Welcome to the Miami Valley Church Podcast. We're so excited that you are here with us. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you are going to hear today. We'd love to have you join us online Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at miamivalley.org. If you love the Miami Valley Church Podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Now go, love the valley right where you are. Do not despise these small beginnings for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plung line in Zabriel's hand. The seven lamps represent all the eyes of the Lord that search all around the world. Zechariah 4.10 Hey, good morning. This is Pastor Jed and welcome to Miami Valley Church. We are a community of people who want to get the good news of Jesus Christ out to this valley and all over the world. But instead of doing it our way, we are asking God, how would you have us to love and share Jesus right where you've placed us? The first step in doing that is by trusting the Lord and doing good. As this valley and this world are desperately looking for hope, we want to point them to Jesus. We don't want to make ourselves or even our church famous, but to make Jesus known. That's who we are. That's what we're about. And we are so glad that you are here to join us on this journey. Hi, church. My name is Pastor Kevin, and we've been challenging our church to help us pray through the question of how we love and share Jesus with this valley. And today I wanted to tell you about one great way you can do that, and that's through our partnership with Hope for Miamisburg. And Todd Baker is going to tell us a little bit more about what exactly Hope for Miamisburg is. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, Hope for Miamisburg is a community engagement uh progression that is a go-to-market strategy under Miami Valley Leadership Foundation, what we call MVLF. Uh, Hope for Miamisburg is one of many communities that Miami Valley Leadership Foundation has stood up around the Dayton area. But in particular, Hope for Miamisburg is one that's moving with great momentum. We bring together many of the domains within the community, the cities, the schools, um, the nonprofits, the local businesses, and those are all done under a church-led uh, model, if you will. So we bring all of the churches, the leaderships of the churches together, and then we bring together these other domains. And Miamisburg has had a great success in uh, organizing events, meeting many needs through the schools and, and otherwise. Uh, we have mentoring programs that we reach youth, uh, young adults, even high school children and beyond. Um, we are actually looking for mentors. So if you would be interested, that would be a great engagement um, process, if you will. But uh, we have many platforms, many ways to connect with our own community. Uh, and so if you are interested, we would love to have you. Uh, feel free to reach out to myself, Todd Baker, or Sarah Pelfrey, who is our local um, Hope for Miamisburg director, um, as well as Kevin. Any of us can get you uh, the connections that need to be made to make that engagement and uh, that process happened. So we would love to have you. Thanks so much. Uh, I hope you hope you will take that next step. That's great, Todd. Over the next few weeks, you're gonna get more information as far as how you can get connected through uh, Hope for Miamisburg as we challenge you to love and share Jesus with this valley. So I hope you'll take advantage of that and serve in whatever best uh, fits you. A question for you as we get started this morning. Are you ready? 40 days from today, Christmas day. 
Are you ready? Now, some of you are about ready to get up and start going shopping because you thought Christmas was still a long ways away, but 40 days when we get the chance to celebrate the, the first advent of our Lord Jesus, when he came as the baby born of a virgin, he would live a life of perfection and he would die a death on a cross. And so are you ready for that celebration? But the real question is, are you ready for the day when he comes back, not as an infant, but when he comes back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's how we're seeing him presented to us in the in the prophets. And today we look at the last six books of the Old Testament and we finish seeing making Jesus known in the in the prophets and the in the twelve and the uh, minor prophets, not minor because of their messages less than anybody else's, but just the length of their books. And so we're just wanting to make Jesus known. And I hope this helps you get ready for this Christmas, but even more importantly, I hope it gets you ready for the time when Jesus comes back, when he will reign forever and ever. And so let's just jump into God's word today, making Jesus known in the book of Nahum. In the book of Nahum, we see Jesus presented to us as the jealous and zealous God. Nahum 1, 2, the Lord is a jealous God. We don't like to think about that much. We don't like to think about how he just is jealous for our souls, how he doesn't like it when we sin, how he wants us to live in obedience, how he wants us to follow hard after him. He's jealous, my friend, for your soul. He wants this relationship with you desperately, and he is zealous uh, in his jealousy that he will come after it and do everything that he can to get it. And in Nahum, he is also good, he is strong, and he is close to us. Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust in him. And that's why we see he's good, he's strong, and he's close. And our verse for the decade, trust the Lord and do good because he's good and because he's close to you. And Nahum, he's also uh, the divine warrior who pursues his enemies for the sake of his people. Nahum 1.8, he will sweep away his enemies in an overwhelming flood. He will pursue his foes into the darkness of night. He is the victor and he's after and he's pursuing after his foes. But we also see in Nahum's, God, in Nahum's book that he is the messenger of peace. Nahum 115. Look, a messenger is coming over the mountains with good news. He is bringing a message of peace. And Jesus brought a message of peace, how we could have peace with God, how we could have peace with one another, how we could have peace uh, with the world, but most importantly, how we could have peace with God through belief in what Jesus came to do. And then in Nahum, he's also uh, the one who restores Nahum chapter two, verse two, even though the destroyer has destroyed Judah, the Lord will restore its honor. Israel's vine has been stripped of branches, but he will restore its plunder. Jesus is the restorer. No matter what's happened to you, no matter what's happened to me, he can restore us. And most importantly, he can restore us from a life that is broken and separated to him to a life that is whole, filled with peace, that lives with him, more and better life than we could ever imagine. There he is in the book of Nahum. But I want you to look at the name Nahum, because we saw last week as we look at the minor prophets and all the prophets, there's so much to learn about Jesus even in their names. Nahum's name means consolation. It means comforter. When I think about Jesus being the consolation, I think about that time when he was still an infant, just days old, and his mother Mary and his earthly father Joseph took him to the temple as they were supposed to do. And there was an elderly man there named Simeon waiting for Jesus, waiting. And when he saw Jesus, Luke chapter two, verse 25 says this, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout, and he was eagerly waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And he looks at the little infant Jesus and he says, this sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. He is the glory of 
of your people, Israel. He was waiting for the consolation, the one that had been promised, the one who would bring comfort, the one who would bring hope. But we also see the comfort and the consolation of Jesus written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses 16 and 17 says this, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal consolation and comfort and a wonderful hope comfort you and strengthen you in every good thing you do and say, how do we trust the Lord and do good? Because Jesus is our consolation. There he is in the book of Nahum. Then we go to the book of Habakkuk. Now, a couple of things about Habakkuk. Number one, you're really glad that that was never a spelling word on any spelling test that you've ever had, because it's just one of those names that just gets really awkward to spell. But when you think about Habakkuk, the way I remember the message of Habakkuk is, do you remember the phrase, uh, that's just too good to be true? Yeah, you know it's too good to be true, it probably is. Well, that's not Habakkuk. Habakkuk looks at life as, that's too bad to be true. The bad things that are coming, there's absolutely no way that that could be true. In Habakkuk, we see Jesus is from everlasting to everlasting, so we can trust him even though things get bad. Habakkuk 1.12, O oh Lord, my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal. And Jesus is gonna say in John chapter eight, he's gonna say, before Abraham was, I am. He's eternal, and we can trust him even when things get bad. The other thing we find, even when things get bad, we see that Jesus is never late. He's never early, but he's always and constantly right on time. Habakkuk 2, verse 3. The vision is for a future time. It describes the end, and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. That's why Paul writes to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. When we were utterly helpless, when things were so bad, it's so bad to be too bad to be true. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. He came at just the right time is when he shows up. And also in Habakkuk, we see Jesus is the, the victorious one who rescues and saves. Habakkuk 3, verse 13, you went out to rescue your chosen people to save your anointed ones. You crushed the heads of the wicked and stripped their bones from head to toe. Reminds me of the first place we ever see the gospel, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when Jesus tells the enemy what's going to happen, that he will be defeated, that Jesus Jesus will win. He's the victor. That area is in Habakkuk. Also in Habakkuk, we find that Jesus is our salvation, our strength, and don't miss this. He is our steadying joy. When things are so bad that we're like, this is so bad, it can't be true. No way God would let this happen. He is our strength, he is our salvation, and he is our steadying joy. Uh, Habakkuk 3, verses 17 to 19. I just want to read verses uh, those verses, even though the fig tree have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vine, how much worse can it get? Even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, how much worse can it get? Even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, how much worse can it get? When it's just as bad, it's too bad to be true. Yes, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the highs. When things are too bad to be true, he is our salvation, he is our strength, and he steadies us with his joy. The name of Habakkuk, it means embracer. It means wrestler. How can both of those things be true? I think those are the things we have to do with God. We have to wrestle with God and we have to then finally embrace him. Habakkuk just wrestles with God when he's told that God is raising up the Babylonians to come and conquer uh, the southern kingdom and that Jerusalem's gonna be destroyed. Habakkuk, like, that's just too bad to be true. It could never happen. And he wrestles with what God's going to do, but finally he comes to embrace that this is God's sovereign will and this is God's uh, sovereign plan. Uh, Habakkuk 1, 5, chapter one, verse five, the Lord replied, look around at the nations, look and be amazed for I'm doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe if someone told you about it. I'm raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people. They will march across the world and conquer other lands. I'm raising them up. And I know 
that some of you are wrestling still with what happened in our election. You're like, how in the world is God in that? And we have to wrestle with those things and we can't believe the things that have kind of happened. And this isn't a political statement. This is just how we have to live life. We, we see that God is sovereign and he can do whatever he pleases and we wrestle with that. I, I see Jesus doing that himself. Think about the, the night that he was betrayed. He goes to a garden and he begins to pray and he prays so earnestly, he begins to sweat drops of blood. And part of his prayer is this, he wrestles with what's about to happen. God, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He wrestles with the will of God, but then he embraces it. But not my will be done, your will be done. Think about Jesus hanging on the cross where he wrestles with the will of God. God, uh, um, uh, how, how, my God, my God, how could you forsake me? And then he embraces the will of God. Into your hands I commend my spirit. I watch Jesus wrestle. And I think he does that where we need to wrestle with God's in prayer. Friends, the most important thing that we're still doing as a community of faith is Tuesday nights at eight o'clock, we're praying together. We're wrestling with the will of God for our lives. We're coming to wrestle with it so that we can embrace it and that we can take the next step. Jesus had to do this in his earthly life as he wrestled. He was fully human, even though he was fully God. Can, can you imagine how he had to wrestle with his mother and his brothers and his sisters thinking that he was insane and that he didn't belong and they wanted to take him and get rid of him how much that must have hurt he had to wrestle with the will of god but he also embraced it how about you and me can we simply say my god my god uh, it seems like you for a second this is too bad to be true but not my will be done your will be done uh, there he is uh, in habakkuk and then we get to zephaniah and zephaniah zephaniah uses the phrase more than any other prophet uh, the day of the lord we saw this last week when we looked at some of the prophets the day of the lord as they were forecasting and predicting the day that jesus would come and zephaniah uses this phrase over and over again zephaniah chapter one he tells us four things about the day of the lord he said number one it's near number two it's going to be filled with wrath number three it's a result uh, because of your sin that you deserve punishment and judgment and number four when it comes to the day of the lord hold on there's going to be some blessing in it because all of a sudden the presence of god will be with his people and so it talks about uh, the day of the lord but but uh, zephaniah's name is interesting it means uh the lord hides <laughs> the lord hides and most of the time when we think about the lord hiding we think that he's hiding from us but over and over again throughout the scriptures we know that god doesn't hide from us uh the, the scriptures say, uh, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart that's what uh zephaniah is going to say in chapter two, verse three, he says this, seek the Lord, all who are humble and follow his commands. Seek to do what is right and live humbly. Perhaps yet even the Lord will protect you, hiding you from his anger on the day of destruction. He's like, seek him, he can be found. And if you seek him and when you find him, just know he's the Lord who's not going to hide from you. He's the Lord who's going to hide you uh, from all of the pain and all the destruction. It's ultimately coming with the day of the Lord. Isaiah the prophet says this, seek the Lord while you can find him, call on him while he's near. He's there to be had. In the New Testament, there's uh, Paul writes to the church at Thessalonian in the Thessalonica, and he uses this interesting phrase, a phrase that simply says, I am here. My friends, I just want you to know that if it feels in your life that God is distant, it's not him that's moved, it's you. He can be found, and when you find him, he wants to hide you, he wants to protect you, he wants to care for you. And as he hides you, we need him to hide us because he is the jealous judge. Um, Zephaniah 3, 8, therefore be patient, says the Lord, soon I will stand and accuse all the evil nations, for I've decided to gather the kingdoms of the earth and pour out my fiercest anger and fury on them. All the earth will be devoured by the fire of my jealousy. If that's how he's gonna come, and it is how he's gonna come, we need to be hidden so that we're not impacted. And we find in, in Zephaniah, he's the savior who reigns. Uh, Zephaniah 3, 17, for the Lord your God is living among you. He's a mighty savior. He will take delight in you with gladness, with his love. He will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. When he hides 
guides us. He calms our fears. He sings over us. And we know that his banner over us is love. He's He's the God. He's Jesus. He's the one who hides us. Paul writes to the church in Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Wouldn't that be great for some of us who are still wrestling with what happened in the election? We'd really start to think about the things of heaven and not the things of earth and all the things that seem just too bad to be true. For you died to this life, check this out, and your real life is hidden with Christ in, it's hidden with Christ and God. Jesus is the God who hides us. Your life is hidden and the things of this earth can't touch you. Nothing has come to you that hasn't come through the hands of God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in his glory. What a joyful thing he sings over us. And as he hides us, when he returns, we'll share in his glory. Now we get to the last three books of the Old Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. I need you to see that, that the that the timeline of history has shifted. No longer are the prophets prophesying before the destruction of the northern kingdom, before the destruction of the southern kingdom, before they're taken off into exile. Uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi all prophesy after God's people had returned. And they appear in chronological order. So Haggai is closest to the return. Malachi is furthest away from the return. And so I want you to see Jesus uh, after the return of God's people to the land of promise. And Haggai, Jesus is the Lord of heaven's armies. Many of the prophets, as we've been reading, the minor prophets use this phrase to describe Jesus, uh, the Lord of heaven's armies, as translated in the New Living Translation. Some of your translations say Lord of hosts. Some of your translations say uh, Lord Sabaoth. It, it's, it's, he's, he's the Lord of heaven's armies. What, what does that mean? It means so many things, but one of the things, I think at its fundamental level, it means this, is that when I, wherever I am in life, Jesus is sovereign and he is in control of all the angels of heaven. He's in control of those who work on his behalf and he can do whatever it takes to get himself or to get them to me and to get me where I need to be. He has at his command the disposable, the disposal, uh, the opportunity to get to me and to get me where I need to be in a time of discouragement and spiritual opposition. We need to know that he's the Lord of heaven's armies. But if he's the Lord of heaven's armies, look what he says uh, through Haggai the prophet. The Lord of heaven's army says, consider your ways. Chapter one, verse five, he says it again. Chapter one, verse seven, consider your ways. The Lord of heaven's army says, one of the reasons you're not feeling me very close to you is you, you've gone astray and I need you to turn and I need you to come back. Consider your ways. That's why Jesus reveals himself as the way. It's why when Jesus is preaching the greatest sermon above all, he talks to us about priorities just like Haggai is when he says, uh, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all the other things would be added unto you. He's the Lord of heaven's armies who wants to get to me and get me where I need to be. Listen to what he says, chapter two, verse seven. I will shake the nations and the treasures of all the nations will be brought to this temple. I will fill this place with glory, says the Lord of heaven's armies. The charge in the book of Haggai, they've, they've been back like 30, 40 years, something like that. And their, their houses are good, their fields are good, everything's going good, but the temple of the Lord has not been rebuilt. And the Lord of Heaven's armies issues us a tree, go build the temple. And I love the fact that in the book of Haggai, we see that within about 24 days, they start building the temple. We actually have dates given to us. So within three weeks, they start to do exactly what God had said. And as they start to build the second temple, they start to get irritated. They start to get frustrated. They start to get discouraged because they look and say, what we're building isn't anywhere close to the first temple that was here. How is this even going to work? But listen to what uh, the Lord says, I will fill this place with glory. 
And we know when it comes to the second temple that Jesus says, tear this temple down and I will raise it up in three days, that the temple is Jesus's body, it's Jesus himself, and that it's his glory. That's why John writes this in John chapter one, we beheld his glory. In Jesus, we see the glory of God. But listen in chapter two, verse nine of Haggai, it says, the future glory of this temple will be greater than its past glory, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and I will bring peace upon this place. I, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. He's like, you're gonna build it, the glory is gonna fill this place, and the peace is gonna fill this place. And when Jesus dies on the cross and the veil of the temple is torn in two, it means that now man can have direct access to God. And what Jesus accomplished on the cross brings us peace with God. Isaiah chapter 53 says this, the punishment that brought us peace was on him in his death, and he rebuilds the glory of the temple. The name Haggai simply means my feast. And so I'd remind you that even in his name, it points us to Jesus. Think about the seven feasts of the Old Testament and how Jesus is fulfilled and pointed to in each one. Haggai's my feast, the feast of Passover. Remember Passover, the children of Israel had cried out, God heard their cry and he saw their misery and he sent a rescuer and a deliverer and he's gonna lead them out of Egypt. And he says, the angel of death is coming, but sacrifice the lamb and place the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And if the, if the angel of death sees the blood, he'll pass over. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, John the baptizer looks and said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus shed his blood as the Passover lamb. Uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Unleavened Bread uh, talks about Jesus. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. It being unleavened, it, it means it's without sin. And the scriptures say Jesus was tempted in every way we are yet without sin. He's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's the Feast of First Fruits. When people at the, as, as the, uh, trees begin to blossom and the fruits begin to produce. They take the first fruits and they bring it as a sacrifice and an offering to Jesus. And Paul says this about Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is the first fruits of the dead. And so the feast of first fruits points to Jesus. The feast of Pentecost, it's the harvest when we celebrate the Lord of the harvest, but Pentecost is also celebrated as the day that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to give us power so that we could be his witnesses. We said this before that God, our God is ascending God. God the Father sends God the Son. God the Son sent the Holy Spirit and God the Spirit sends you and me to be his witnesses to all the world. So Pentecost points us to Jesus. The Feast of Trumpets, uh, just think about that. When Jesus returns for that final time as King of kings and Lord of lords, the scriptures say this, that he will come with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet blast of God. And so we see Jesus in the Feast of Trumpets. The Day of Atonement, when, when atonement was made for all the sins of the people, when it was transferred onto the Lamb, when the high priest did this, First John chapter 2, verse 2 says, Jesus himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Jesus is seen in the Feast of the Day of Atonement, and then in the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles, when they come back, and, and the people are required to build temporary shelters to dwell in as a reminder that as they journeyed through the wilderness that the glory of God rested in the tabernacle. But we've seen already that Jesus is greater than the tabernacle. And again, in John chapter one, God's word says that Jesus became flesh and blood and tabernacle dwelt among us. Jesus is pointed to as the feast. And you and I, we get to celebrate another feast. We call it the Lord's Supper. And every time we take that bread and we drink that cup, we'll remember what Jesus said. This is my body given for you. This is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And the scripture says often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He is fulfilled even in the feast we celebrate as the Lord's Supper. There's Jesus and Haggai, the feast. Then in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah may be more than any other prophet than Isaiah. We, we know his prophecies. We, we zero in on them. And so I just want to go through them quick. Maybe you're very familiar with them. In, Isaiah, in Zechariah, uh, Jesus 
is the branch, chapter three and verse, and chapter six, he says, he's the branch. I'm going to bring back my servant, the branch. It's a tie back to the fact that he's king, that he comes from the line of David. Matthew chapter one, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And it traces to the branch, to the lineage of David. But listen to what Zechariah says in chapter six, verses 12 and 13. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. He is the man called the branch. He'll branch out from where he is and build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he will build the temple of the Lord. Then he will receive royal honor and will rule as king from his throne. He will also serve as priest from his throne, and there will be perfect harmony between his two roles. He is perfect king from the line of David. He is the priest that can offer the sacrifice on our behalf. There he is. He's the branch. And then continuing on in the book of Zechariah, we see in chapter 9, he's the humble king. Zechariah prophesies that this humble, humble king will come riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, Chapter 9, verse 9, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And we remember what we call Palm Sunday when Jesus says to a couple of his followers, go ahead. And there's a donkey, a colt that's never been ridden on. The master has need of it, and he's the humble king. We also see in Zechariah's prophecy, chapter 11, that he is the king who will be betrayed. Chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, I said to them, if you like, give me my wages, whatever I'm worth, but only if you want to. So they counted out for me my wages, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said, to me, throw it to the potter, this magnificent, magnificent sum of which they valued me. By the way, do you hear the sarcasm? Only 30, this magnificent sum, it's not magnificent. So I took the 30 coins and threw them to the potter in the temple of the Lord. There it is. He's the one who would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. And we know that Judas betrayed him with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver. He's also the one in Zechariah, the one who is pierced that causes an entire city to mourn. Chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out my spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and on the people of Jerusalem. They will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. They will grieve bitterly for him as for a firstborn son who has died. He's the one who's pierced his hands, were pierced, his feet were pierced, his side was pierced, and it caused mourning all over the city. Remember on that first Easter Sunday when Jesus joins his disciples on the road to Emmaus, when he explains the scriptures to them, they're mourning and they're weeping. And she said, why are you so sad? And their response, are you the only one in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know the whole city mourned because he had been pierced as a firstborn son who had died? He is also in chapter 13 of Zechariah, the cleansing fountain. 13.1, on that day, a fountain will be opened up for the dynasty of David and for the people of Jerusalem, a fountain to cleanse them from all their sins and their impurities. He is the cleansing fountain. We remember First John chapter one, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is the cleansing fountain. God's word says, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. He's the cleansing fountain. And then finally, in the book of Zechariah chapter 13, he is the shepherd who was slain. He was the shepherd who was sacrificed. Listen to chapter 13, verse seven. Strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and I will turn against the lambs. Jesus, on the night he would be betrayed, after he celebrates the supper with his disciples in the upper room, after they sing a hymn and on their, as they're on the way to the garden before he will pour out his sweats of blood and prayer, Jesus quotes from Zechariah chapter 13, verse seven. Jesus says this in Matthew 26, 31. On the way, Jesus told them, tonight all of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And sure enough, all of the sheep of Jesus' flock scattered. They didn't stay close by his side. And so there he is in the book of Zechariah. Over and over again, we see Jesus. Zechariah's name simply means the Lord remembers. And I think about the fact that the Lord remembers. I think about Jesus hanging on the cross between two thieves, being mocked. One of them mocks him and the other one finally looks at him and says, Jesus, Luke 23, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is the one who remembers. And when we ask for his salvation, he grants it and he will never 
forget that he saved our souls. There he is in Zechariah. And then in Malachi, I see Jesus as the one who is the messenger of grace and truth. The one who is the messenger of grace and truth. He's a messenger of grace and truth as, their, as our savior. Malachi 3.1, look, I'm sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. The Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant for whom you look so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. He's the messenger of the covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. He came to be our savior and we see him in Zechariah and in Malachi as the one who is a savior full of grace and truth. We also see him as the one who purifies the saints, Malachi 3, 2 through verse 4. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will appear like a blazing fire that refines metal and like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner's silver. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. He will purify his people. He purifies us. He purifies his people because he wants us to be made more like him. The scriptures say that those he predestined, he predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ. He's making us more and more like him, taking away all the things that shouldn't be there. Titus 2.11 says this, for the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasure. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. While we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. He gave us his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, to make us his very own people totally committed to doing good deeds. He is the one who purifies the saints full of grace and truth. And then, friends, he is also, however, in grace and truth, the one who judges sinners. Malachi 3, 5, and 6. At that time, I will put you on trial. I will eagerly witness against all the sorcerers and adulterers and liars. I will speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, who deprive the foreigners that live among you of justice. For these people do not fear me, says the Lord of heaven's armies. He is the one filled with grace and truth. And in truth, he says, it matters how you treat one another. It matters how you treat people. He says, by this will all men know that you're my disciples that you love one another. My friends, in Malachi, we see Jesus. His name simply means my messenger. And Jesus came as the one who preached a 17-word sermon. The time has come. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe the good news. When people tried to get Jesus to stay in their village, he said, no. Luke chapter 4, he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in all of the villages. That's why I was sent. He came to be the messenger of grace and truth. That's why John says, we beheld his glory as if the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. There he is in the last six books of the Old Testament. What do you do? Let me challenge you with this, what Malachi challenges us with. He says this, ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. That's the call when we see Jesus in all of the scriptures. It's a call back to that covenant relationship. He will be our God. He takes on obligations to us and we take on an obligation to return to him, to trust the Lord and do good. And we're left with a choice, a very strong choice in the Old Testament. The last words of Malachi's book simply say, uh, come back or I will come and strike the land with a curse. And there are gonna be 400 years of silence where people are wanting blessing or curse. My friend, hear the words of Jesus, the Lord of heaven's armies, return to me and I will return to you. Father, I thank you that we've seen Jesus in every book of the Old Testament on every page. And now we listen to your call the last words of the last prophet of the Old Testament to return to you. Father, may we repent, may we return, may we trust you and spend our lives doing good until Jesus returns. In his name we pray, amen.
Thank you so very much, Lord, just for this opportunity to be able to uh, take Jesus out into the valley, God, the exact command that you have called us to do, God, to go out and just uh, tell the world about Jesus and who he is and what he came to do. Father, I just pray over this evening, God, uh, over all the traveling, over all the equipment, over each person that's here, God, and just the conversations that uh, could possibly happen tonight, God. I just pray uh, that people would uh, see Jesus and come to know him for the first time tonight. So, Father, just use us as you will. In Jesus' name, amen.
so very much in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. He right. said you so much. Name. Absolutely. So glad you did. Yes. As I was reading in Zechariah this week, and by reading I mean listening carefully, wow. The call to return to the Lord. Does that sound vaguely familiar with the current situation we find ourselves in today? But then what it says in chapter 4 and how that is echoed in the book of Acts, we see that God moves not by force nor by strength, but by His Spirit. Just as they waited upon the Lord in Acts, something new was coming that needed to be waited upon. We see in Zechariah 4.10, it says, Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Have you forgotten? that the Lord is aware of everything that is happening, that He is watching to see if we will be faithful. Maybe the ways that you're loving and sharing Jesus you think are not making a difference. I promise you, He is aware and He is watching as we trust in Him and do good and make Jesus 